From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. While the cowbells were deafening at times during the night, the sound that most will remember from Florida's grinded-out win over Mississippi State is the thud generated when Donovan Steiner exploded through the line to sack Nick Fitzgerald on fourth down. The all-out blitz was the exclamation point on a performance that featured consistent ball movement on offense, a stifling defense, and one-trick play that changed the game. On today's show, We'll discuss the keys to the upset and look ahead to a massive meeting against LSU with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry. Plus, we'll talk to sophomore Kadarius Tony about his versatile role in the squad and which teammate he would surprisingly fear in a foot race. But first, while it wasn't always pretty, the Gators clearly made some strides with the way they won in Starkville. To open our roundtable with Scott and Chris, we began by finding out what each of them thought was the primary reason Florida claimed the surprising victory. Halftime adjustments. I mean, first half, Mississippi controlled the clock and uh, had the lead of a field goal battle. And I remember listening to the radio broadcast as Dan Mullen left the field. And his direct quote was, look, they're trying to slow, slow, slow the game down on us. We're going to have to adjust and find some things to do in the second half. And it was offensive and defensive. But obviously, the, the biggest adjustment they made was defensively, turning up the pressure on Fitzgerald and uh you know, Mississippi State had six drives in the second half. Five were punts, and the other one led to the Donovan Steiner game-clinching sack, turned the ball over on downs. That's the immediate, like, just the football part of it for me, Adam. Obviously, from the Dan Mullen perspective, I think most people, when you talked about this game in the offseason, had the Gators losing, but... It didn't happen. It was part of it was Dan Mullen and his staff making those adjustments. And obviously, Felipe Frank's shorter passes in the second half, they, they tweaked that some. Uh, they got some possession in their favor in the second half. And in the end, their defense held on. Yeah, I think if you had had a conversation before the game and said Florida's going to go to Mississippi State and score one touchdown and kick two field goals, you probably would have thought they'd lose the game. So, uh, uh, Coach Mullen was talking about it afterwards, saying how we found a way to win a game a little differently. And um, I thought this was a lot different than a lot of Florida football games we've seen over the years, especially with offensive-minded coaches wearing the headsets. But uh, that didn't make it any any less of a great win. I mean, if anybody didn't watch that game, any Gator fan didn't watch that game, I know Scott and I got a few tweets coming back at us. So that doesn't look like Florida football. Well, who cares? I mean, uh, this is a voting process. That's exactly how Dan Mullen's looking at it. And I like the fact that that's how his team is looking at it also. I, um, I'm sure there's some guys that would like to be getting the ball more. I'm sure there's they'd like to be scoring some more points. But this is how they're going to have to win right now, given the stat, the, the where this team is right now. And Mullen has them believing in whatever it is he's telling them as far as playing the next play. Relentless effort is something we hear a lot, right, Scott? Yep. <laughs> And uh, they had one turnover in the game. They, they, they week after force and six, they didn't force any. And still in the second half, like Scott mentioned, the defensive adjustments, 
Whereas Mullen found some success running some edge plays and, you know, if you want to call them bubble screens or whatever, those quick flares that eventually led to a, a setup play that led to the Kadarius Tony trick play uh, pass. Those are the, you know, those are adjustments on offense to move the ball more. And of course, the, the adjustments on defense he talked about, you're talking about a, a Mississippi State offense. I believe it was averaging up, upwards of well over 200 yards a game rushing. They ran 27 plays in the second half and gained 43 yards. So uh, kudos to Dan Mullingen and his players uh, believing in him. And certainly kudos. We need to mention him. Uh, Todd Grantham, Scott wrote about him after the game, the defensive coordinator who uh, made the calls and made those adjustments and called a really um, onion-esque uh, safety blitz on fourth and 10 to win that game. A play, the exact same defensive play, and uh, Greg McElroy, I guess, talked about this on the TV that they called last year at Mississippi State against Alabama when they had a chance to upset the Crimson Tide and it blew up in their face with a Calvin Ridley touchdown. So um, that's believing in what you have and believing in what you can do and uh, winning a game. You know, it's interesting, going back to the discussion about the offense, and, and you noted if you had said Florida's going to score a touchdown, two field goals, they probably don't win the game. And yet, it, it felt in a lot of ways like Florida had more of an offensive identity than maybe they even did a week before when they scored 47 points. So there's not necessarily a direct correlation between points scored and the way your offense is progressing. I'm curious for your guys' thoughts on the way that that the offense seemed to find something that worked, and then they really stuck with it and built on it. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to that those adjustments. You know, Mississippi State controlled possession in the first half, Florida in the second half, and they knew that they weren't going to probably win that game uh, the way the first half was going. And, and Felipe Franks did find a little bit of a rhythm there in the second half, and the receivers made some plays once they caught the ball. I thought that Michael Pirine mixed in with the – a big third quarter on the ground and the one scoring drive. And of course he threw in a trick play, you know, the, the pass from Tony to moral Stevens. Uh, so it was something that Dan Mullen, this offense is still progressing. I, I think the, the main takeaway I took Adam was from what Mullen said Monday, because Frank's is a topic each week. And he said, the one thing about Felipe so far is if you had to pinpoint where he's progressed the most, it's understanding the game plan each week. It changes each week. He's understanding it more and more, understanding exactly what the coaching staff wants him to uh, execute on Saturday. And he's starting to look more comfortable in it. That's the whole thing about a quarterback progress. I mean, we all seen what Felipe can do physically, but it's we're starting, I think, to see some of those mental strides. But having said all that, LSU is a great defense, a physical defense. You know, you, you're going to have to continue to show some of that growth because this is not going to be an easy test. But offensively, I think it might take more than 13 points on Saturday for the Gators to win. We'll talk about the LSU defense in a second. In terms of that Gator defense, uh, it does seem we're starting to see some of those younger playmakers emerge, which is necessary. If you look at the number of players that Florida's put in the NFL recently, uh, you got to replace that talent with other really strong playmakers. And we saw Sean Davis have a big game. Donovan Steiner and and some other guys had to even emerge because of the weird situation where Trey Dean was ejected early in the first quarter for a kind of an an awkward targeting call. So, you know, this is sort of what happens. You have the growing pains and we saw that against Kentucky. Now, all of a sudden, a defense that people thought maybe had its best years behind it is starting to look like it may have just reloaded and is now ranked among the, the best in the country. Yeah, I would I would put them, and obviously this came on the heels of a uh, of that six turnovers um, the week before. So Donovan Steiner, I, I'll, I'll be honest with you, uh, Adam, on that play, 
I looked up and I saw, I go, who the hell was that? Because, <laughs> because I just wasn't necessarily used to seeing Donovan Steiner on the, on the field and certainly making a play that just jumped out of your television screen like, like that. And I turned to Scott when that, when that Trey Dean thing happened, I go, all right, well, you know, they've, they've lost Marco Wilson. Now they've lost Marco Wilson's replacement. Who is going to step up? And guys did. Nick Fitzgerald didn't look very good in that game. And uh, I'll be the first to say last week I was praising him as a guy who uh, is an NFL prospect. And I, and I, and I certainly believe he, he is, but, he didn't look very good, and it wasn't because he's he's not a good player. Because uh, he he's got some stuff on the back of his football card to suggest otherwise. Um, whoever Florida went with, we heard it ad nauseum a few years ago when Muschamp was here. Man, next man when man down, man up, or whatever. Mm-hmm. They lived that the other night, and they've lived it so far this year. And I thought going into the season, Adam, that they had a lot of depth on the defensive line, and that depth would be rotated in, rotated in, and. and Guys would be kept fresh, and obviously in that Kentucky game, um, Florida missed David Reese and Florida missed CC Jefferson. You asked about the young guys; those are two uh, veterans that were missed in that game when Kentucky rushed for 303 yards. So, uh, uh, kudos to the young guys, but also kudos to the uh, to those older guys that have stepped in, that paid their penance in the case of CC Jefferson and worked through an ankle injury in the case of David Reese. And their mere presence, I think, uh, in addition to obviously their skill set, has helped this defense um, the last few weeks. Let's talk about the LSU game because there hasn't been buzz like this for a Gator football game in a while. And you feel it in social media, you get a sense of it. Certainly the game's being talked about a lot nationally. I'm curious for you guys, what has this been like? I mean, getting back into these big Gator football games, this is how you get back as a program to where Dan Mullen wants to take it when your game is the one that everyone has circled and everybody's talking about? On the plane home the other night, um, on the charter flight, uh, Dan Mullen came back and was uh, shaking the hands of some boosters who made the trip. And uh, I think he was talking to them and he was telling them how tough this game was and how tough this league is. And he said some of the stuff that he said in the press conference about, you know, last week we beat an arch rival on the road. Now we got to play a, a ranked team on the road. And now we turn around and play a top five team at home. But I'll tell you something, he goes, the swamp is going to be the, the swamp this week. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm trying to think of the last time where we had something like that. I would say probably the Ole Miss game in 2015, the, the Tennessee game the week before. Those are the two best since I've been doing what we do here at FloridaGators.com. And that was Ole Miss came in with Chad Kelly. They were number three in the country, and Florida just beat the hell out of them. I think it was 38-10. to 10. Uh, Ole Miss scored a touchdown late to, even, to, <laughs> to make it even that close. But uh, that's the last time I remember the environment like that. And I think that took Florida to 5-0 and that year. Of course, uh, it was the week after that. They beat Missouri, and, and all, everything happened with Will Greer, and things have kind of been spinning wheels since. So uh, the fans around here have been looking forward to a game like this for a long time. It's some, obviously a rival that Florida plays every year. It's a rival that uh, kind of intensified two years ago here with the whole hurricane situation. So this is the this is the second straight row game on the heels of that uh agreement to play twice in a row here so uh yeah people are excited the game will be sold out it'll be a swamp game for sure yeah i was on the outside earlier in the week and uh there's stuff going on outside the stadium in preparation uh it seems like it happened a little bit earlier this week because there's a expecting a sellout crowd by the end of the week there's some guy named tim tebow (laughs) coming back to get into the ring of honor uh the 2008 national championship teams here and to speak to what Chris said, I agree with him totally. It's the biggest game set up since that 2015 game 
between uh, the Gators and Ole Miss because you got to remember that was a week or so after the big play against Tennessee that won the game late. Will Greer's touchdown pass to Antonio Callaway. And now here we are three years later, uh, been longer than certainly uh, most expected. But this is a, a game that when the SEC or when the schedule came out this year for the Gators, it was a little less sexier than a couple of years past. But there's one game on there that everybody had, you know, marked down, and that was the LSU game. It was going to be a big game regardless, but now it's uh, taken on some extra importance considering Florida, you know, climbed back into the polls after the win over Mississippi State. LSU is 5-0, and ranked number five in the country. And, uh, you know, this game also holds some connection to LSU because, you remember, they won here last year 17-16, and at that time, Ed Orgeron, was the coach that was really under fire, not Jim McElwain. But in the retrospect, Jim McElwain only lasted uh, two more games after that. And Ed Orgeron is 11-2 and two since that game. Hmm. So it's, it's, it's a big challenge and uh, one that has people's interest. So let's talk about that LSU team. Obviously, they're good. They're undefeated. They're physical. They're fast. They're big. They always are. What are some of the names you guys are going to be looking for? Who's going to have the biggest impact on this game from the Tigers' standpoint? First of all, Adam, you got to start with the quarterback at LSU, Joe Burrow, the transfer from Ohio State, already over 1,000 yards. Uh, he's also got some athletic abilities to make plays with his feet. And defensively, well, you got Devin White at linebacker, Greedy Williams at cornerback, two of the best players in the country at their position. I just see this as your typical Florida LSU matchup. It's physical. And now with the, the game taking on some meaningful uh, purpose after uh, last week's win, I mean, the Gators are uh, excited about the challenge. I don't really see it as a as the typical uh, LSU kind of team, except for the athleticism. I, I look at, I, I go across the board on statistics, and usually LSU is going to be like a team that runs the ball really, really well. It's going to be really, really highly ranked on defense. But you start looking like their scoring defense is seventh. Their rushing defense is, is fourth. In the This is in the league, which is good. Their pass defense is 10th. Florida's rush defense is uh, tied for 12th in the SEC. You go up to total defense, Florida, or excuse me, LSU is, is eighth. Florida is fifth. So you go up and down these things. Um, th- these are two statistically middling teams with the exception of one thing that they have going for them they're one and two in the league in giveaway takeaway takeaway ratio that's one of the reasons that both of these teams are or have won nine of the ten games combined that that they played florida obviously leads the country in takeaways lsu i believe is the top five team in that category they're forcing turnovers and the offense is taking advantage of those turnovers without by being opportunistic now having said that florida didn't force any takeaways this past week. They still lead the country in takeaways. So uh, I think it's something to be watched uh, this weekend. I think Florida needs to take care of the ball, obviously. One other thing that has to be pointed out, Adam, and this is something I, I'm sure a lot of Gator fans aren't talking about, probably should be talking about. What about the job that Tommy Townsend has done for special teams? Mm-hmm. The guy has been sensational. He's punted 20 times. 11 have, have been downed inside the 20. You know, you go right to some of the some of the, the factors in your Mississippi State uh, that has to wear on you the other night when uh, uh, every drive was starting on their own 11, on their own 10, on their own 12. They're back, and, and then on first time, maybe there's a sack. So now they're now they're backed up on a on a second or 13 or something. If Florida can maintain that kind of thing and get that kind of activity and Tyree Cleveland down there catching punts inside the 
15 yard line or whatever, that's going to be a huge advantage for Florida. I think they're going to have to take advantage of the opportunities they have to flip the field and to uh, win some of those uh, hidden yardage battles in a game against a team like LSU. As Scott mentioned earlier, in addition to what is a very, very hyped game on the field, there's a lot of pomp and circumstance going on around this game, specifically the 10-year anniversary of the 08 National Championship team and Tim Tebow, his uh, coronation, if you will, into the ring of honor. So can you guys talk about some of what's happening around this game that's going to contribute to making this such a really unique weekend? I mean, to highlight Tim Tebow's coming back at him uh, to be inducted into the ring of honor, he's joining uh, guys like Steve Spurrier, Danny Warfel, Emmitt Smith, Wilbur Marshall, Jack Youngblood. Uh, you're talking about royalty and some of those names I just mentioned, and that's where uh, Tim Tebow is coming back to uh, take his place there. Interesting to note that how it all ties in in some ways. Dan Mullen here is back as Florida's head coach. He was part of that great run with Tim Tebow, and you've got a game on the schedule that it just shapes up nicely uh, with what the Gators have been able to do since that early season loss to Kentucky. The, the fan base is excited. I think they would have still been here for Tebow regardless, but it's certainly going to be a, a more uh, emotional uh, stadium, an atmosphere that's going to be, I think, electric for a Saturday afternoon game. And besides that, he's going to have a lot of familiar faces back with him. Uh, Lewis Murphy is going to perform the uh, honorary Mr. Two Bits. I think they're expecting between 30 and 40 of those uh, members of the 2008 team at least back in town to be honored for winning the national title. So it's a it's a kind of a bridge between the, the great past of a decade ago and also a reminder of what Dan Mullen is trying to do to kind of recapture some of that magic that Tim Tebow and the and the Gators had during the during his time here. Moving on to our PAT this week, uh, a big topic last week and especially in football was boneheaded play calls and decisions. I'm talking about James Franklin on fourth and five running the ball against Ohio State, ultimately losing that game, blowing the 12 point lead in the fourth quarter. I'm talking about the Indianapolis Colts going for it on fourth down in overtime from their own 35-yard line and gifting the game to the Houston Texans. I'm also talking about Bobby Petrino, essentially in a position to run the clock out against Florida State, throws the ball, gets it picked off, they lose the game. These are three decisions that all directly led to an outcome of a game possibly changing. So it's got me thinking, what are some of the dumbest, most boneheaded calls, decisions that you guys can think of from your vast time and experience? Well, I'm going to stick with recent memory since we're on a podcast and this is a recent form of media, Adam. <laughs> uh, I go back to the Super Bowl a, a few years ago between the Seahawks and the Patriots. Seahawks are within striking distance of basically a, a game uh, ceiling touchdown. They have Marshawn Lynch ready to carry the ball across the goal line. And Pete Carroll decides to... Uh, to pass instead of just relying on Mark Marshawn Lynch to score the potential game-winning touchdown. Instead, Malcolm Butler intercepts it, and Bill Belichick, Tom Brady, and the Patriots celebrate another Super Bowl victory. And you look, here we are, what, three years later, four years later, Adam, and that was really a, a defining turning point in Seattle's franchise history because a lot of people looked at the Seahawks at that point as maybe a team that, you know, would win more Super Bowls because they'd already had one. They win another one. 
And it's a, it hasn't worked out that way. And I think even on that same weekend that you're talking about all the bonehead play or coaching calls, as you as you referenced, that got so much attention uh, from fans and the media, wasn't it kind of ironic that also this past weekend, I think you could trace back to some of the disharmony in Seattle that started back then when uh, Earl Thomas broke his leg and and flicked off his own bench. Yeah, how just, about that? I haven't seen that very often, Chris. Have you seen that much in your in your career? <laughs> I, I thought that was Photoshop. No, that was real. That, that was, was real. No, 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 but I mean, when you think about it, it's, it's, it's flipping off his own bench. I mean, good lord. So, I think that just sums up what that play and what the last three years or so have been like for the Seahawks because they were a model franchise at that point, and since then. The wheels have kind of fallen off, and a lot of those names that were on that team are no longer there. That's just one that sticks out in my mind, Adam, from recent history. I remember a play you'll see on uh, NFL films every now and then. Um, I'll go back all the way to 1978. New York Giants were on the verge of an upset. They'd lost, they'd, they were on a little losing streak, I think, and they were on verge of an upset of the Philadelphia Eagles in the Meadowlands, and all they had to do was run out the clock. All they had to do was take a knee, actually. And they had a really, really bad quarterback by the name of Joe Pasarczyk. And uh, I guess uh, the coach on the sidelines, John McVay, and this this story actually has a gator angle to it. Is that right? Yes, it does. How about that? John McVay, he makes the call to hand the ball off to Larry Zonka. Pasarczyk puts the the ball in the wrong place. Fumble, everyone's ever seen the play. The ball is fumbled. And a guy I got to know from my first year covering the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Herm Edwards, scoops the ball up, runs it in. In the in Giants lore, it's called, simply called the fumble. In Philadelphia lore, it's called the miracle in the Meadowlands. And uh, so that Eagles team was coached by Dick Vermeil. I off the top of my head, I don't know that they made the playoffs that year in '78, his first year. But Vermeil had quite the run there. They eventually, of course, made the Super Bowl, uh, I believe, in his third year as head coach then. But it was quite the uh, idiotic uh, thing to do. Take a knee, get out. But here's the deal is John, uh, John McVay, the head coach, was only the head coach because the coach who was fired in the middle of the season of the New York Giants was Bill Arnsbarger, oh. the future hmm. athletic director at the University of Florida. Interesting. Wow. Chris really brought a full circle this week. That was very impressive. I, I can make mine Gator-related as well, uh, a critical series of decisions made by Dan Quinn, former Gators defensive coordinator, as the head coach of the Falcons in the Super Bowl. It hurts to think about it and talk about it, but it really, you could narrow it down to maybe five different decisions. Almost every one of them is run the ball, uh, which goes back to the, it's the same thing as, as the Seattle story as well in the Super Bowl. When you don't run the ball in certain situations late in the game when you're in the red zone, uh, it can come back to bite you. And for the Falcons, it did. It cost them a Super Bowl. So Seems like two of the three examples we gave benefited the New England Patriots, didn't it? Yes, and two of the three of them also directly involved Dan Quinn. That's right. Really brings it full circle. Fortunately for Dan, he was on the wrong side of both, right? Yes, <laughs> Dan Quinn was on the wrong <laughs> side of both, though. exactly. Yeah, but yeah, he still remains perhaps the favorite coach I've dealt with at Florida. Really good guy. Good guy. Well, hopefully for my sake, he, uh, he starts finding ways to win more games and stop blowing fourth quarter leads. Good stat for you guys before we go today. I, I believe only four teams have ever scored 36 points at home without any turnovers and lost. And two of those four are the Atlanta Falcons the last two weeks. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Stats are fun. You can get lost in those all you want. But what we really want you to get lost in 
is Florida LSU coverage over at FloridaGators.com. Chris and Scott will have all of that for you, as well as on Twitter. You can find him at Gators Scott, at Gators Chris. Gentlemen, thank you so much as always. Thank you, Adam. Thanks, Adam. Some athletes are so dynamic that they're simply referred to as athletes. Kadarius Tony is the type of talent that defies categorization, as he's proven the ability to make plays from under center, in the backfield, or in the slot. The former high school quarterback showed off his arm on Florida's spectacular trick play last weekend, and likely has defensive coordinators wondering how Dan Mullen will deploy him next. We don't know the answer to that question, but we did get some solid information from Tony on a variety of other topics, beginning with what kind of message the Gators sent by beating a ranked team that was out for revenge. kind of think it was like a powerful statement. It was a statement that we didn't let the Kentucky loss uh, hinder us. We took that as ammunition and let fuel to the fire. Well, and, and going back to that Kentucky loss, because I know guys still talk about that in terms of a real motivating factor. A lot of people were off the bandwagon at that point. They said, oh, Florida's not going to be any good this year. But it seems like that's kind of continued to fuel you week after week as this thing keeps progressing. Yes, sir. Uh, like all the negativity from the outside, we just ignore that and focus on us and building together as a team. We're coming together as a team and building a strong bond. You know, it was such an emotionally charged game against Mississippi State. What was that environment like to compete in and how challenging was it? Uh, it was kind of crazy. It was just like a lot of emotion filled into the stadium. Like you can feel it because Dan Mullen, he wasn't on the Mississippi State sideline. He was on our sideline, the opposing team trying to come back and get a win against the players that he recruited and coached and stuff like that. So that was kind of big for us to pull that off. But going into the game, it was kind of crazy. It was kind of like uh, we should play for Coach Mullen, but he tell us don't play for him. So it was kind of like on and off, on and off. But when push came to shove, we put everything on the line because we knew what was at stake. Like we knew everything that was going to benefit from it, especially with Coach Mullen, with him coming from that program and turning it around. We he just pretty much worked in magic here and did the same thing, turned us around from uh, last last season. One thing that was obvious was the uh, the presence of the cowbells, and, and it's hard to ignore that. I'm curious, how did you guys prepare for that kind of noise, and what impact did it have on you during the game? We like had situationals at like practice and stuff like that, so we were pretty much prepped for like hearing the loud cowbells and stuff like that. But honestly, in my opinion, I kind of feel like Tennessee was louder. Like, I feel like it was louder in Tennessee than it was in Mississippi State. So that really didn't, like, affect us, honestly, I feel. In terms of the, the coaching staff and so many of them coming from Mississippi State, what kind of insights were they able to give you because of what they knew about that team and, and about the way that they were going to play? Um, they basically told us that it was going to be a physical game and it was going to be a fight to the end. So. We prepared our mind for that. Like when we was at practice, we was practicing to finish every play, every rep, because you never know which one going to win the game. That's what Coach Savage tells us every day. You never know which play going to win the game, so go hard on every one. So that was our mindset going into the game because they had coached the uh, players recently, so they knew like their tendencies and stuff like that. So they kind of like prepared us mentally for um, the game we was walking into. Now, you were responsible for the only touchdown of the game on that trick play that got Gator Nation really fired up. So can you tell us when you guys first started working on Kodak and what you were thinking when that got called? Uh, We started working on it like in the summer, kind of. But when it was called, it just, I I really don't know what was going through my head. I just knew because like every time, 
Like, we call it a play. I just know, like, it's going to work. I feel like it's going to work. I feel like it's going to work. So when we called it in the game, I was kind of nervous. It was like, I don't know, maybe they give me a different look than we practiced before. But they did exactly what the look was at practice, and I just had to make a good throw. I want to take things back for you a little bit now. Can you tell us about your family and where you grew up? Uh, I grew up in Mobile, Alabama. Uh, I got three sisters, three brothers. So my whole family was, like, into sports. Like, my cousins and my uncles and my dad and everybody, like, they was, like, real, like, good athletes, man. It just really, like, was in our family to just do some kind of sport, like, no matter what it is, tennis, soccer. Uh, like, when I was younger, uh, my uncle, he took me to, like, a football game. That was the first time I ever pretty much heard of football. And I was like, I want to play that. Like, I was interested into it. Like, I was wondering, like, how it really worked. So, like, the next year, my dad ended up taking me out to um, the park, like, right there by the house. Like, my first day, I was, like, better than, like, most of that, like, half the people that was there. <laughs> And it was kind of crazy because I never played before. So it was like, I ain't know what I was doing. But over the years, I got coached and had people like behind me, like to support me and keep me humble and stuff like that. And everything I was doing, it made me work harder than everybody else. Were you playing other sports before you got this idea that you had to play football? Or is that your first real venture yeah, was, into athletics? Yeah, that was kind of my first introduction into like any athletics. Like, after that, that's when I started venturing off and started playing other sports just to stay, like, uh, active, like, throughout the year when it wasn't football season. Like, I played basketball, baseball, stuff like that. I was good in those sports, too, but it wasn't like football. Like, football was a whole different level, and that's, like, where I put, like, my heart and passion into. So, it's just, like, that was, like, the route that I was going to stick to no matter what. Well, you've shown so much versatility in your career that I imagine – you played a lot of different positions coming up. So what are all the different places they tried to put you on the field uh, during your, your early career? I played running back, I played quarterback. Uh, I kind of played receiver a little bit, like maybe probably like at practice, like messing around, nothing major because I mainly played quarterback and I was a person throwing it. I could throw the furthest, like stuff like that. So I was mainly like quarterback and I played safety. Uh, a little high school, I played cornerback a little bit. I just play like all kinds of different positions, like so I can use my uh, skill set. Were you a two-way player? Were you playing like every down during high school? No, nah, not every down. I was uh, like mainly like for clutch moments, like where we might need a stop or anything like that. Or one of our cornerbacks got hurt or something because they didn't really want to hurt, like get me hurt going right. out there trying to stop somebody and stuff like that. So I was like situational. I wasn't really like uh, every day. I mean, not every day, but uh, every play. So when it came time for recruiting, and obviously you generated a lot of interest, what schools made the hardest push for you, and what made Florida ultimately stand out? Uh, I feel like everybody made a hard push to me, but when I came down here, it was just a whole different atmosphere. I felt like I was at home away from home. Like, it just was a whole different atmosphere, and I wanted to just be a part of it. I feel like it was a place where I could be like every day, and I won't like have certain problems like I won't be bored homesick stuff like that like they were just a home away from home and I had a good surrounding like supporting cast and the coach Max staff and I got a good supporting cast and this staff right here also. In terms of those two staffs I'm curious what what that dynamic has been like for you having to sort of change gears because when you come in as a freshman you learn how to do things under that staff and then you have yeah. this big change to a different staff so what have been the biggest challenges in that transition for you? I mean, it was kind of hard, like, um, well, really changing positions because that was, like, kind of crazy, changing positions. So I was really just getting uh, used to it, like, last year. Like, that was my 
like introduction into it. Like everything was pretty much new to me, like new position, like new to college. Like it was just a lot going on. But this year, I feel like I didn't grow a lot because of like Coach G. He worked on like different techniques and stuff like that. He he gives a lot of advice on how to run routes, when to do stuff. Like it was just like a lot. It was like a huge learning process for me. So they're basically that. Last year you were number seventeen. This yeah. year you're number four. Is there a story behind those numbers and and the change? Like seventeen, that was just the number that they had gave me, honestly. But uh, four, that was my high school number. Like that was the number, like the number that I'm known for, like pretty much everywhere. Cause that's where I like that's the number I made my name with. So me changing from uh seven to four in college, it was kind of like it was gonna happen eventually because I had wanted four last year, but you know Brandon Powell was there, so I couldn't really get it. So I had to wait till uh he left basically to get four, and I had asked him mother, and he guaranteed me that I was gonna get it. So. What, was there anything to the number four in high school, or was that just your number? Is there a reason that became nah, your number? My uh, like my late coach, he he like uh thought that was the number like for me. Like he had died like uh my temporary year. He was like the person that made me like be able to like get on the field my temporary year and start as a uh, varsity quarterback. So when he signed me the number, the number just stuck with me. Like it stuck to me. Like everybody know me as like number four, number four, number four. So when I got to college, you was seventeen. It was like kind of off but <laughs> like this year I feel like I'm I'm back like to where I was not saying like the number make me it's just like I just feel like my original self like four like that's the person I was like being like number four <laughs> when you look at your Gator teammates which ones have been maybe the biggest mentors to you so far and and why have they been important to you I mean it's a, it's a lot of them honestly like Tyree Cleveland LaMarca Piran Siante Lewis C.C. Jefferson, uh, Freddie Swain, for sure, uh, Voshan Joseph. I mean, all of them just pretty much took me up under their wing, like, from the moment I got to college. And, like, oh, yeah, and Jacopo, like, my bad. That was another one. Like, mostly all of them just took me up under their wing and groomed me to be, like, more mature than, like, typical freshman year. And, like, they made me, like, focus on the big picture instead of focusing on being wild by being in college and stuff like that. Like, they, they helped me remain focused and remain humble and like, everything I do and work hard. What are some of the biggest lessons you feel like you learned during your freshman year that have changed the way that you've approached your sophomore season? How I prep myself, how I handle things like like little things like clean my locker, stuff like that. Like it's just like little things it turn into big things. It's it's like handling a business accordingly. That's how I feel like when I'm at practice. It's like a business mindset. Like I pay for what I'm gonna do on Saturday now. Like if I'm gonna be tired, I'm gonna be tired right now instead of being tired on Saturday when I'm needing the most stuff like that. Like my preparation is totally different. Like uh, I get more treatment now on everything, so I won't have to worry about facing injuries and stuff like that. Like if I get a little nick or anything, I'm going to get it checked out stuff like that. Like I don't let injuries and stuff dwell alone now because I feel like I did that last year. When obviously you got to be at full strength because what you're known for is your speed. And uh, yeah. whenever I talk to fast guys and ask them who maybe can take them in a race, they say nobody. But I'm curious, are there any guys on this team you think maybe could keep up with you if they challenge you to a 100-yard uh, dash? I'll say C.J. Henderson, Dre Massey, Tyree Cleveland, Chancey uh, Gardner, uh, Scarlett. Yeah, Scarlett for sure. He's fast. Hmm. P. Ryan. It's, uh, it's a lot of people. Like, our team, not slow, so... <laughs> I, uh, I mean, I wouldn't, like, necessarily say they'll beat me, but I'll be, like, it'll be a race, like, honestly, with all of them, because all of us got pretty much good speed. 
So you feel like you can beat anybody, goal line to goal line, you can beat everybody on the team. Is there anybody you can say right now would probably beat your goal line to goal line? Uh, goal line to goal line, I'd say CJ, because he ran track. He was a track runner. Okay. Like CJ Henderson, he was a track runner, so I feel like he'll beat me, honestly. That's humble. No, I won't really, never enter. I won't never enter track though, so I won't really like down with the technique. I'm just a natural runner. Like at least you know what race is not to get into, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I still, I'm still a competitor at the end of the day. <laughs> so we know you're not a track guy, but I'm curious outside of football, and if we take things off the field, what are some things that you enjoy doing when you have free time? Honestly, I like to play with my snakes. Uh, you have snakes. Yeah, I got three snakes. I got two ball pythons and uh. uh Dumero boa. I, I got a rabbit too. I just got a rabbit. Do the snakes eat the rabbit, or do you, do you keep them nah, apart? Hopefully, nah, not a, nah, Yeah, I keep them apart. The rabbit, you <laughs> <he> my pet. <laughs> how how did you yeah. get into snakes? That's an interesting uh, interesting pet to have. Uh, I mean, I've been interested in snake snakes for a minute. I just never like really bought one because I know my mom and people like were scared of them, so I wouldn't like just go buy a snake just to mess with them. But like when I got back, like when I got down here, and I was just like. I had more freedom, you feel me? Because it's like I'm by myself, basically. <laughs> so I just went ahead and bought me some snakes. Bought one when I was at home, like before I had came to college. Pretty, well, I came back from college, like uh, December. I ended up buying one, and then this one I had got two more. Uh, Tyree bought me one for my birthday because, you know, I had uh, one and one. All right, final couple things for you. We'll get things back to football. Uh, and, instead of talking about snakes, let's talk about some Tigers. LSU weekend. This is probably the biggest game you've been a part of since you've been a Gator What's the yeah. buzz been like in the locker room for this game coming up? Uh, it's really not a buzz. I feel like it's just like everybody just know like the work that we got to put in to get what we want at the end of the day. Like everybody like focus on making sure everything is perfect going into the game because we can't really start slow or anything like that. So we pretty much like like everybody just focus right now. Like we just trying to get this win honestly. There's a lot of cool things happening this weekend. One of them is Tim Tebow is going into the Ring of Honor. Oh, yeah, that's and they're big. going to be taking care of that 08 National Championship team on the 10-year anniversary. What does it mean to you and the other guys that are young in this program when you have legends like that come back and, and have a chance just to hear from them? I mean, that's phenomenal. I mean, it's, like, really motivational because it's, like, you've seen the things that they did back then. Like, we, we got the same qualities, and it's, like, motivational for us because it's, like, we haven't been to the national championship since then. Like I don't, I can't put it in words. It's like it's hard. Like given what you know about LSU and, and your preparation, what are going to be the keys to getting a win in the swamp this weekend? We got to play great offense. Uh, play great. We just got to play great overall because they got a good defense and our offense. We got to come with it. Like we can't slack. We can't have turnovers. We can't have three and outs like stuff like that. We just got to stay on the field keep ourselves in the game so we know we've already seen kodak we're probably not going to see that again but just give us a little tease what are, are the chances good we'll see you throwing the ball at some <laughs> point again the rest of this season can you give us a little teaser <laughs> oh no i mean it'll be it'll be exciting too like to do but uh, i don't really know yet i don't know what's on come well in my keeping the cards close to vest i appreciate that uh Kikarius, <laughs> thank you so much for your time good luck this weekend and we hope you have Dude. a lot of fun out there thank you and that's going to do it for this week's show if you haven't already done so be sure to subscribe to gator tales in the podcast app of your choice and please leave a review to help us continue to grow 
Florida and LSU will rumble in the swamp on Saturday at 3.30 on CBS and the Gator IMG Sports Network. Then come back next Thursday as we'll have a new episode breaking it all down. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in the swamp.